Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Quote, Somebody must have been telling lies about Joseph K. For one morning, without having done anything wrong, he was arrested. So begins the trial, the celebrated novel by Franz Kafka. The reader's drawn into a bizarre, nightmarish world in which nobody will tell Joseph K. the charges against him. Courts of interrogation convene in obscure corners of tenement buildings. Sex and sadistic punishment seems arbitrary, and there seems to be no escape from a crushing bureaucracy. Kafka was a German-speaking Jew who lived in the Czech city of Prague across the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. He spent his days working as a lawyer for an insurance company, but by night he wrote stories and novels considered now some of the high points of 20th century literature, although few were published in his own lifetime. His explorations of power and alienation have chimed with existentialists, Marxists, psychoanalysts, postmodernists, and Radio 4 listeners, who suggested this as our topic for Listener Week in, in Our Time. So thank you to Roy Bailey and Lauren Hall, the two of you who made this suggestion. With me to discuss Kafka and the trial are Elizabeth Bowe, Professor Emerita of German at the University of Nottingham, Steve Connor, the Grace II Professor of English at the University of Cambridge, and Richie Robertson, Taylor Professor of German at the University of Oxford. Steve Connor, as well as the trial, people may have heard of Kafka's other novels, The Castle and his novella, Metamorphosis. Can you give us an idea of the work he produced and his themes as a writer? And his, He died when he was 40, didn't he? TB. Yeah. There we are. Yes, I mean he he begins writing in about 1908 as kind of, as young man. He, he in his lifetime he published only two collections of stories, and in fact stories are what he seems to have devoted himself to mostly. And apart from <clears throat> he, he his his most completed novels are, are I suppose the trial and the castle. The castle being the last work that he undertook. Um, and uh, his third novel, uh, the the, um, the first that uh, he started to work on in about 1911, uh, is usually published under the title America. Um, these th- none of these three novels are in fact complete. Um, they uh, they move progressively towards, I think, a darker, more obsessive vision of uh, a single individual struggling to find some sensible way of proceeding in a tangled web of uh, uncertainty and obstruction. Um, the world of uh, Kafka's world, and one one really always wants to say this, that there are certain writers who inhabit, who construct worlds that are somehow bigger, almost more important, more inclusive than the actual novels that they write. Dickens would be another, Lewis Carroll would be another, and Kafka's world is one um, of a kind of s- extraordinary strangeness that can burst into everyday life, but rendered with a oddly insistent levelness and muted lucidity. Um, the three novels that deal with these um, these predicaments, the first, America, in a rather uh, un- uh, surprisingly uh, knockabout kind of way, but the, the extraordinary thing about about Kafka, really, and the, and the thing that perhaps is most important to remember is that the stories are where the extraordinary bursts into the mundane and has to be made sense of. And how does the trial fit in? How does it slot into the preoccupations of major preoccupations as a writer? Well, the trial, I think, focuses on the law, 
but actually it's it's the law as a kind of system of deferral a system of indirectness it stands for all systems that somehow don't really seem to have a center or a purpose or a point and um, and in that sense it stands for this new modern experience of bureaucracy itself the experience of the office which for many writers from Charles Lamb onwards Dickens certainly has been the kind of rival to literature in the case of Kafka very literally a rival we've heard you know he had to carve out time from his work in an insurance company the workers insurance company um to to write and yet and yet those two worlds of writing kind of bleed into each other so his his literary writing in a certain sense is trying to make sense of this other world that has become the experience for all of us somehow an experience of of language no one is quite sure who's in charge of it what its purposes are there might not be quite time to go into the um, proposition that working for the insurance through the day helped his writing, just like T.S. Eliot working in the bank helped his writing, but we'll pass on that. Yeah, there are other insurance writers. as Wallace Stevens, too, was an insurance agent. Yes. Elizabeth Kafka, he was born in Prague in 1883. He died there in 1924. It was a time and place of great change in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Can you tell us something of the historical setting of this work? Yes, well... Kafka's literary world is a strange world and he inhabited what is in many ways a very strange world, as it seems. Uh, The empire came to an end when Napoleon crowned himself in 1804. Jumping forwards to 1867, you have the establishment of the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary. Kafka came from Bohemia and the Bohemian lands were denied the kind of rights which were granted to the Modgers. Then, during the First World War, Masaryk went to London in 1915, and the Republic of Czechoslovakia was founded in 1918, in October. The dual monarchy was a multinational polity. The biggest group uh, were the Slavs, of about 45%, then Germans, 23%, Modgers, 19%, and then a mixed bag of others. In the lands of the Bohemian crowns, there were about 5 million Jew- Czechs, I should say, and about half as many Germans. Uh, in 1910, the Jewish population here was about 1.3%, but it was much larger in Prague, around 7%. And according to one uh, biographer of Kafka, um, of the German minority in Prague, they were by this... Prague was by now definitely a Czech city. Of the German minority, about 85% were probably of Jewish extraction. These percentages are all very well, but how many numbers, how many people in Prague were, uh, were Jewish? I haven't got the number haven't got on that. my That's sheet. So he, was, <laughs> he was a German-speaking Jew in Prague. They were a minority, yes. such a minority that they didn't count as a people when it came to voting. That's right. Um, uh, the so they didn't Jew- have the vote. It's just that's just for they a did have the vote. They what, did have what the happened vote. What happened? What did they not have then? It was in the in the census. The Jews chose either to affiliate as German right. or as Czech. And this contributes. But they didn't have. Sorry to be pedantic. They didn't have votes as Jews. No. Right. They, they were not. I was about Germans to say they were not yes. recognised as a people. 
So those figures that I was giving do not include Jews as a nation because they weren't recognised. Uh, what happened then was that the Jews in the census count, which uh, contributed towards voting and so forth, they either affiliated as, according to language supposedly, as Czech or as German. And this contributed then to the anti-Semitic uh, stereotype of the Jew who just looked after their own <coughs> interests and had no basic roots or loyalties. Yeah. And the anti-Semitic reality yes. as well in the mm -hmm. empire at that time. Uh, how did the Kafka family, and Franz Kafka in particular, fit into this world briefly? Yes. In Prague, a German-speaking Jew, uh, and, and where do you go from there? Well, Hermann Kafka came from the countryside, from a village. His father had been a kosher butcher, and he was a self-made man who developed a business in selling fancy goods, dry goods, uh, haberdashery and so forth. His mother was a rather different background, uh, from a much more prosperous family. Her father was a prosperous brewer, and her uh, maternal grandfather had been a well-known rabbi and Talmudic scholar, so there was quite a, a social gap between the parents and this contributed perhaps to some of the tensions in the household. Um, Kafka had three sisters who were, especially his youngest sister, was very important to him. And she studied agriculture and she was also a vegetarian. And um, in the end, she they were hoping perhaps to move to Palestine. But... Uh, Otla, this young sister, married uh, a Christian, Yosef David. And uh, I think one ought to mention very briefly the fate of the sisters. The two elder sisters were uh, deported to Roch and <coughs> died in the camp there. And Otla, the youngest sister, divorced her husband, her Christian husband, and was sent to Terezin. And then she agreed to go with a group of children to Auschwitz. And that was... That's much happened. later on. So so yes. let's get back to our subject, Richie Robertson yep. to Kafka. Um, he's, he started to write at quite an early age. Can you tell us how he started to write? He started off in, to be... Uh, he ended up being a lawyer and then he went into insurance and that's where he stayed until a few years before his death because he was too ill to keep on working. That's his career. So his career is that. Now then, when did he start to write? He started to write very early in the century with um, texts which were never published until long after his death. And these are um, fragmentary, almost incoherent, um, anticipating very much the kind of um, magical narratives that would become more popular after the, after the Second World War. What we call magical realism. Yes, you could certainly see that. Um, <clears throat> the setting changes, characters change their identity, etc. Um, these, however, only remain drafts. The first um, book Kafka published was a collection of short sketches under the title Meditation. And these are very sharp, very focused evocations of atmosphere and emotion. But his breakthrough story was The Judgment, which he wrote in a single night in September 1912. The metamorphosis followed shortly after, and the trial dates from two years later, 1914. 
but not published until after his death in, in 1925. That's now right. let's talk about the judgment. Then you say that's his breakthrough. Yep. What was he breaking through to? Were these short stories published? These sketchy short stories published in his lifetime in little magazines in Prague? They were published, but the judgment was a story where he felt he'd expressed what he wanted to express um, in a single coherent narrative with a dramatic build-up and a climax. He says in his diary, he describes the experience of writing it, um, how there's a great fire which everything can be consumed. Everything he wanted to express came out in that story. What was it that he wanted to express? Well, there is in it a young woman called um, Frida Brandenfeld, FB, which are the initials also of Felice Bauer, whom Kafka just met, and to whom he soon afterwards became engaged, and the initials also of Fräulein Bürstner in the trial. Above all, the story has a recurrent Kafka situation. A professional man who seems to be well established in his life, doing well in business, suddenly finds some of his life interrupted by something unexpected. And the interruption takes the form of his old father. He goes through to the, the back of the flat to speak to his father. The father asks him a puzzling question. Some dialogue follows. Then the father, who seemed old and frail, jumps upright in his bed, denounces the son for unspecified crimes, and sentences him to death by drowning. And the son, completely under his father's spell by now, rushes out and drowns himself. So it's right. a fantasy about authority and punishment and guilt. And we know that Kafka's father was a particularly heavy-handed, that's a light way of putting it, man. Yes. Um, Does the trial have a plot, uh, Steve Connor, which can be uh, uh, summarised in uh, such a succinct way as Well, if you try to summarise it, you, you very quickly start saying, and then, and then a bit later, and then a bit later. Nearly all of the chapters begin one day, as though Kafka was starting again. But the, the novel certainly begins in a way that Kafka liked, with a sudden eruption into an ordinary life, the life of a bank official... Um, who wakes up <clears throat> to find three, uh, th two men in his apartment building who tell him that he's under arrest for a crime unspecified. He thinks it's a joke. Um, uh, but the, uh, he's told that he's under arrest and yet free to go to the bank. So he's under arrest but not in detention. So his life thereafter will become a state of permanent arrest. Thereafter, uh, he eventually acquires a lawyer uh, he works with the lawyer, discusses with the lawyer um, the nature of his case, he eventually tries to dispense with his lawyer. That chapter isn't complete, so we don't know if he does dispense with his lawyer. After a series of episodes in strange buildings uh, in uh, unexpected quarters of Prague, meeting with people who may or may not be influential uh, officials and meeting um, with a number of women with whom um, he has some very unexpected and abrupt sexual liaisons um, uh, he is the, there is a final chapter um, that occurs a year after the first um, uh, in which he is taken apparently willingly to his death by two executioners but we really don't know how all of these different episodes join up and in a certain sense I think that ending 
feels very staged and forced, almost as though Kafka had, had, had written where, where he wanted to get to, but he somehow never got to. And it's that state of being in the middle of the trial that the novel is really characterised by. So it's a plot that you've summarised well. I think that's got about almost everything in. Uh, but it's also been uh, called many times, Craig Rain lately in Arete and so on, as really a dream. The whole thing is as the nature of a dream. This is how dreams work rather than how narrative fiction works. Yes. But we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Can we just develop this, Elizabeth Bow, a little? Can you tell us little about the main characters of the novel. There's Joseph K. to start with. He is the hero. He is the protagonist. He is the, whatever he is. He's the middle of it. Well, um, Kafka, there's a tag where he says, no psychology ever again. And the characters in the trial are not psychological studies. They have no depth. They are conveyed through their outer appearance, through isolated details and Kay himself is conveyed through his responses to the sequence of characters the characters are uh, come to life through very much uh, as Steve was just saying through the different places that they are associated with. So who are they these other characters? So there are various groups associated with locations the men who arrest Kay at the beginning turn out to be associated with his bank where he works and they are indeed his inferiors two of them and this is peculiarly humiliating adds to the humiliation of the arrest these two uh, warders uh, Franz and Willem as they are called in the name Franz of course makes you think of Kafka himself turn up later in a crucial and horrific scene in the bank in the lumber room in the bank where there is a, an S&M theatrical punishment being carried out on fat Willem, who is fat, and he's about to be whipped and he has to take his trousers down. And the, the whipper is a, a blue-eyed, fresh-faced figure. So you have this um, sense of um, the, the horror and also these stereotypes to do the, 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 the whipper is a Germanic stereotype. So the, those, the, those the, the, the people at the bank, the people who come to arrest him, or also work with them at the bank. Then, then there's the woman who is his landlady. Uh, yes, we could just pass by her for a second. And the woman to whom he confides next door, uh, who is a new, young, modern career woman. The who, second, yes, yes, that's right. The second phase of the arrest takes place in the woman's bedroom. So you move from the man's bedroom to the woman's bedroom. Fräulein Bürstner is her name, another, an FB figure, uh, like Kralitza Bauer, and she is uh, a young modern woman, the new woman, perhaps, and she's the first of a a sequence of women uh, who often point the way towards where the next stage of the trial will will take place. A second such woman is the wife of the court assistant, uh, who goes through a sequence of affairs. You know, she is um, she starts off as a, a bright-eyed young uh, uh, mother washerwoman. Then you, we see her being sexually abused at the back of a, a, a meeting up in the attic in the in the slums where the first interrogation happens. She's then 
carried upstairs by a student and handed over to the examining magistrate. So this is an, an absolutely surreal sequence of sexual exchange of women among men of different hierarchical status. And, the, said, and there are others, mm-hmm. but those you've given us the main characters. Can I? Can, <laughs> well, sorry, I'm, I'm, we have to yes, do the program. So, do you, there's somebody that you I particularly really crucial you missed. I want to add the advocate, the lawyer yes. Hult, uh, who is his name means Grace. His maidservant Laney is the most extraordinary figure in the novel. A grotesque with webbed fingers, a peppery smell, and who pecks at Joseph Carr. They have a, they have a, a sexual scene uh, in the back room when the men are continuing to talk about the law in the advocate's room. So she is uh, the ultimate dreamlike figure who morphs through different uh, aspects of being a maidservant, a cook, and then she's like a harpy, uh, kneeling on his knees and pecking at him uh, and inducing guilt in Yusuf Carr. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry I interrupted there. You were quite right to bring that back. Richie Robertson, uh, when I was talking to you before, I didn't bring up the uh, Felix Felix Barr, his... um, uh, the woman with whom he had a relationship he was engaged to three times, three times they mm-hmm. broke it off, uh, and she was, and after they finally broke it off, it was something like a day or so afterwards, he started to write the trial. Can you tell us a little about her? Yes, certainly. She was a real-life example of the new woman whom Elizabeth has been talking about. She began as a secretary in a firm making dictaphones, and she eventually became part of the management she was an immensely able, intelligent, well-read, competent woman. I saw a few days ago some specimens of her handwriting. It's a very bold, round script. Kafka admired her competence, but he was also very intimidated by it. Um, he lived in Prague. She lived in Berlin. <coughs> um, he met her on, when she was on a visit to Prague in 1912. They corresponded. There was an immense body of letters from him to her. Hers to him don't survive. <coughs> but he had very severe misgivings about getting married. There was an engagement party where he was miserable and looked it. He went with her to to buy furniture and felt he was being dragged around like a criminal in chains, as he says in his diary. Anyway, various other silly things happened, and there was a painful scene in a hotel room in Berlin where Felix, her sister and a female friend, all told Kafka how badly he'd behaved and broke off the engagement. He then... Um, went on a prearranged holiday and very soon afterwards started writing the trial, initially as a kind of therapeutic exercise. And I should say that um, one reason why the last chapter of the trial, the execution, feels a bit abrupt, as Steve said, is that Kafka wrote the first episode, the arrest and the sexual assault on Florian Burstner first, then immediately afterwards wrote the end, which is the only other chapter in which Florian Burstner appears. He knew that his stories tended to, to, to run away with him. He knew how he wanted to end this story, so he wrote the ending and then filled in the, filled in the rest. So uh, it's called the trial, and there's this mysterious court which mm-hmm. has been alluded to uh, already. It is very mysterious, and, and we find it in the top of an unlikely mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. destitute tenement yeah. block. Yeah. Uh, it turns out to be riddled with pornography and mm-hmm. goodness knows what else, right? Can you tell us what part that plays in this book? You're right that the court is located 
in tenements, in uh, garrets, in attics. And when it intrudes into Joseph Key's working space, it's in what was thought to be a disused lumber room where this terrible vi- um, scene of violence takes place. The court, in other words, is in the margins of life, <coughs> is in the places that you, that you forget about. In order to get to its premises, Joseph Key has to go into urban slums, which you normally avoid. As for what the court stands for, there is one passage which um, is revealing. Joseph Key at one point looks at a picture which appears to show the goddess of justice, but she's not standing still. She's running, so her scales um, are, not, are not balanced. Then when you look more closely, she looks not like the goddess of justice, but the goddess of the hunt. The suggestion is that Joseph Key is being hunted down, and he eventually is. And finally, she looks like the goddess of, of victory. So I think Kafka's giving the reader some help here and suggesting that the court, ostensibly concerned with justice, is in fact concerned with hunting down the culprit and triumphing over him. Steve Connor, it's often described as a novel of alienation. I've brought up the possibility that it's a novel that can be compared with a dream. Um, how does Kafka create this alienation dream effect? Yes. Well, the, 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 there's, uh, just on the dream thing, there's something very, very dreamlike about, and, but unexpected in this. When we think of something being dreamlike, we think of, of improbable things like the beginning of the transformation metamorphosis when, um, you know, Gregor Samsa wakes up transformed into a huge insect or piece of vermin. But actually, the dreamlike character of Kafka, for the most part, consists in a strange mixture of sort of perplexity and embarrassment. How often in dreams you suddenly find yourself feeling shy or embarrassed, you've got no clothes on, or or you have some complex task that you can't quite get to the end of, you have to keep starting again. So there are those qualities rather than the more melodramatic kind of qualities of the dream. And it's this sense, I think, that gives that, that str- the strange feeling of just being to the side of where you need to be. It's that kind of alienation where, in a certain way, unlike other writers of alienation who've been called Kafkaesque, one might say Jean-Paul Sartre in his novel Nausea, there's no real explicit discussion of the condition of alienation. Any other novel of the, in this where a character's in this predicament, they might very well say, well, what on earth could be happening to me? This would happen in a Dostoevsky novel. So so Kay is kind of alienated from his own alienation. He doesn't have words for it. Elizabeth, uh, Just to give one example, in the first interrogation, when he goes to the slum, he goes up into this attic, and it starts off as if it were a political meeting, with characters arguing left and left and the right. It then morphs into a group of ancient old men with stiff beards and you can cut into these beards with your claws or the beards are like claws and then at the back the, the, the room is rather like a synagogue with a gallery round about it and then at the back the bright-eyed young woman is being sexually abused. Now this is like a dream sequence of the anxieties of Yosef K, his sense of class guilt you know, this left and right, then of the the Jewish stereotype really of these old men with beards and this modern assimilated person if you like, and he's actually shown to be Christian at one point and then the sexual guilt 
So although it's true what Steve's saying, that, that it's, it's all at the edge, it's at the same time also at the centre of what is going on in the, the, the world that Kay inhabits, which is a world of class differences, of abuse of women, of ethnic tensions of, that lead to the most horrific kind of activities. And, and it comes across as a dreamlike succession of anxiety. It's almost an, an institutionalised abuse of women. Prostitute was, mm. Prostitution was massive in most of the cities of Europe then and, mm. and very much accepted. And if I could add another <laughs> dream effect, Lainey uh, herself, we heard about how the image of justitia turned into the goddess of the hunt. Well, again, in a, in a very dreamlike section, uh, there is the, the merchant block who is one of the accused. The accused are all men, but he, uh, li- he almost lives in the household of the advocate. And Laney, at the end of this scene, holds him by his collar and drags him over so that he's kneeling in front of the advocate. And Laney appears there as a as an, a, a woman who is playing the same role as this justice figure in the in the painting. And it shows an image of men enthralled to sex, subjected through the sexual drive, and of women playing a role in in bringing such men to uh, uh, accede to power. Uh, this this is all true, and and this is this is how the novel sounds when you talk about it. When you read it, though, what's most disconcerting is that all of these enormities are narrated with the same kind of flatness. It's all on a level. Um, there is no, there's no like horror, there's no scandal. Way, it is, it, it is. Yeah. It's, like, it's like some you know, civil service bureaucrat's report on some terrible hellish set of circumstances. Richard Robertson, um, we're talking about a novel that happens in urban settings, many different spaces. We've, there's the first bedroom, there's the second bedroom, there's the house, there's the tenement building, there's the storage cupboard, and then there's the cathedral. We'll come to you in one second uh, with Steve. But can you give us um, your view on the way in which those urban spaces work for the novel? Kafka's very inventive with urban spaces. Um, although the setting of the novel is not named. It feels quite a lot like Prague. The cathedral is quite a lot like um, St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague. The working-class suburbs are the places that Kafka occasionally had to visit and so forth. But what's most... Um, on his work in insurance? Well, on one occasion, um, his father, who was, was a tyrant in many ways, abruptly dismissed all his employees in the shop. And Kafka had to visit them in their homes and persuade them one by one to come back. Um, which lets him practice his fluent Czech. Um, but um, it's the domestic interiors that are most striking and often actually very very comical. Everything is small and inconvenient. For example, when he goes to the cathedral, he's um, addressed from the pulpit, not from the main pulpit, but from a very small pulpit beside it, which appears to have been made especially for the inconvenience of the preacher. The... Court inhabits garrets. A very important character we haven't mentioned yet is the court painter, Titorelli, whom um, Key visits in the hope of getting some advice. He does get advice, but he can do nothing with it. Um, Key lives in a slum garret. <coughs> well, art- artists are supposed to live in garrets, so that's OK. Um, <coughs> the window won't open, so it's very stuffy. Um, his 
room gives directly onto the court premises, but the door that gives access to the court premises is behind his bed. And when the judge comes to see Titorelli, he has to come through the door and scramble over Titorelli's bed, whether Titorelli is in it or not. We hear also of a room that the lawyers have that has a great, that has a great hole in the floor. They sit with their legs dangling down. So Catholic actually has quite a lot of fun with these inconvenient species. Uh, Steve Connor, mention has been made of a cathedral towards the end of the <coughs> novel. He's supposed to be escorting a, a visiting client around for his insurance firm and going to show him the cathedral. He goes to the cathedral, seems to lose him, or deliberately loses him, and there's a priest who tells him a parable. Yes. Can you tell us what the parable is and what yes. it signifies? So this, this chapter is like a little mise en abime, a little interior reflection of the whole novel. And indeed, there is this story that is told that, that Kafka had published separately, <clears throat> um, uh, something usually called Before the Law, told to him by the man who identifies himself as the prison chaplain um, uh, of a countryman who comes and seeks admission to the law. He's told by the man who's guarding the gate of the law um, that he cannot let him in but that he can wait if he wishes. Uh, and the man sits down and waits, and he's never let in, and he waits and waits for his entire lifetime. And at the end of his life, as his senses are failing, he says to the guardian of the gate, please tell me, why in all this time has nobody else sought admission to the law? And he receives the reply, because this gate was made only for you, and I'm now going to close it. Um, what then happens is a kind of... Uh, a, a, a kind of uh, uh, um, a commentary on this, a sort of, you know, uh, a debate about whether or not the guard is in fact deceiving the man or whether the guard himself might be deceived. Um, it's like a little kind of seminar that takes place. Elizabeth Bowe, the trial uh, since his publication in 1925, after a rather slow takeoff, has attracted an immense amount of attention, readership, discussion, films, operas, and so on. But uh, a lot of interpretations from a Jewish, Christian, existentialist, Freudian, Marxist, psychoanalytical, postmodern. Which one strikes you as being the most plausible? Oh, what a question, demanding a direct answer. Several of them strike me as being plausible. That's the problem. I'd rather have one to start with. Well, I belong to what I had done as the last phase of Kafka reception, following upon uh, Joseph Kay's victim in uh, the Cold War view of the trial as being about um, the persecution by uh, political powers. You then get uh, the loss of meaning in, in uh, deconstructive media. But when, when Kafka's manuscripts began to be really worked over, uh, a new phase, I think, developed of, I would call it, the cultural turn. And to my mind, the most uh, uh, convincing and, and um, exciting ways of reading Kafka have to do with the multinational polity that Kafka lived in and with the tensions that I think um, the, the, the court brings out. The court is, a, is a, an earthly, worldly body which um, provides the structure of power relations and of oppression in this world. The law, however, is a different question. And I think one reason why 
the, the, the novel has attracted so much interpretation is that these two elements, the court on the one hand, offers the kind of social historical reading that I've been suggesting of uh, the Jewish situation, the abuse of women and so forth. But the law remains the look towards a possible transcendent uh, meaning, a a post-religious hunger for transcendent meaning. So I I think that um, you have to have both of these approaches to look both at the possible religious sense of this novel and at the uh, socio-political uh, look at the class society, capitalism, the bank as the temple of capitalism and so forth. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Richie Robertson, um, From following on from what Elizabeth Burr said, was there any, is there any sense when you read the trial that you're getting, you're being, uh, that a message is being imparted to you? No, absolutely. <clears throat> Not in the sense that Kafka thought of messages beforehand then considered how to, how to write it. That wasn't his way at all. He only discovered what he wanted to say in the process of writing. But <clears throat> the trial does have many messages, <clears throat> and I would take um, from it as particularly interesting um, a message rather different from what Elizabeth has talked about. Um, I used to read it as a um, religious text, and there are grounds for that, but I now see it much more as being about authority and, above all, how the victim of authority um, is complicit with authority. Joseph Key tries to resist the trial through a lot of bluster at first, but, in fact, he comes under the spell of the court. He goes along with it. Um, he, loses, he loses track of his job because every waking, waking moment is spent thinking about his case. Um, and when the executions come for him, he's already there and waiting for them, solemnly dressed in a black suit. So it's about um, how the um, victim of authority colludes in his own, imp- his own oppression. And one curious thing about it is that although he has the chance to ask why he's been arrested, what the charge against him is, he never takes it. He's very easily deflected. So one suspects that if he doesn't ask, he doesn't want to know. If he doesn't want to know, in some sense he knows already. So I think it's also a story about self-knowledge and self-deception. Can we develop, Can we take that on, Steve Connor? The trial was published, as I've said, two or three times a year or so after Kafka's death. Uh, against his wishes, he'd asked Max Broad, his, uh, its executive, to destroy it and destroy all his work. Broad, thankfully, uh, disobeyed him. Um, but the change, and it's been pointed out to us by Richie early on, that the end was written very early in the writing of the book. And yet the end obviously troubles you and has troubled quite a lot of people. He is taken out to a quarry, the first outside space. We've got a quarry and a butchered. A big knife is plunged into his heart. That's what happens. Right. Now, why does that bother you? Well, I think it's actually just too conclusive. It's kind of cheap. It's stagey. And because the novel turned out to be about how 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 difficult it is ever to conceive of any conclusion, let alone escape. And in fact, the last words of the novel suggest that even death isn't a proper escape. You know, like a dog, thought Joseph K., as if he meant as if the shame were meant to outlive him. So that there's something about going on, even in the final words. Um, and of course, that's what's happened to the novel. It's somehow carried on and carried on. Uh, in all the different revisitings of it. Elizabeth Burr. Yes, I would say it's not so c- 
conclusive. Uh, throughout, sadomasochism has been a key mode of response to power relations. And uh, Kay has the choice of taking the knife and doing it to himself, which would be assuming the, the role of the court, or of accepting the, his guilt, which he doesn't do either. He doesn't plead guilty. And this sense of shame, I think, is a quite different emotion from guilt and, and leaves you with lots of questions at the end. Yeah. We're going to be left with lots of questions, even though you've covered a lot of my questions extremely thoroughly. Richie, can you tell us, I'm afraid briefly, but mm-hmm. you can do it, the influence that uh, Kafka's had on, on other writers since, the, uh, since 1925? Very extensive, but also quite hard to pin down. If you, if, you, if you want a more recent writer of fantasy, you look, look at uh, Borges, who did actually translate some of Kafka's stories into Spanish. But if I, have to pick, if I have to choose, I would say you can find a lot of demonstrable influence of Kafka in modern South African fiction. I'm thinking of Nadine Gordimer, who responds to Kafka, and above all, of um, J.M. Coutier, who writes a novel called The Life and Times of Michael Kay. Um, a, um, a, dreamlike narr- a dreamlike narrative set in a possible future of South Africa and with themes of oppression, victimhood, etc., clearly inspired by Kafka. And then Elizabeth. And I would add to that Beckett and Pinter as the two big uh, examples in, in English theatre. Yeah. Thomas Pynchon, John Banville. Um, plenty more, I think. <laughs> and I'm afraid we have to come towards an end now. Thank you very much to Roy Bailey and Lauren Hall for suggesting that subject. There's hundreds more to come from your suggestions, and thanks to Richard Robertson, Elizabeth Bow, and Steve Connor. Next week, we'll be talking about Zen. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Every time you tell me what you didn't do on the programme, mm-hmm. you can put in a pound. Three pounds a week. Yeah. <laughs> Those will fill up. I think we'll cover, a lot was covered, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think if you, um... And now you're going to talk to listeners, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the three of you. Okay. Um, which is, uh, I thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Very mm. enjoyable. Sorry, I got a bit, uh, I got a bit, uh, not testy, but a bit hurry up about the percentages because they were meaningless. Cause no, I no. didn't know the basic population. So <laughs> no, no, I didn't sorry. mean anything no, at all No, no, you've always got to move us on at the yeah. beginning. You know, it feels such a long time, 45 <laughs> minutes, but uh, you've got to go through it. And there was really so bit. much more to say about Judaism and Jewishness yes. and this period. I, wanted, I had a lots of I, things to say about it. He said this thing when he was asked about what he thought about um, about his Jewishness. He said, well, why should I have anything in common with Judaism who have so little in common with myself? Mm. Yes, and that was when Max Brooks was trying to interest him in, in Zionism. Yes, yeah. so that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he did become interested later on. Yes, and did yeah. you also He did, he did, that's interested. right. Yeah. Um, One thing we forgot to mention, although you said so much with pseudomasochism, Elizabeth, you didn't mention that the whipper is dressed in a black leather outfit. No, I, I mean the, the, the leathers and very, the fresh yeah. face and the blue eyes. Like a sailor. Most extraordinary mm. Yes. Well, you can tell the listeners that they'd be delighted. To <laughs> right. I'm sure they will. Tell them that the, the programme wasn't anything like as good as it should have been, and you're going to rectify all that with them now. <laughs> anyway, they're Absolutely. waiting to talk to you. Yeah. And good. this is an unusual programme in the sense that um, I'm saying good luck with yeah. the rest of what you do. I won't be with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ideas, they talk to you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4. Introducing Pocket Cast, the powerful podcasting platform recognised by Wired Magazine as the podcast app every iPhone user needs and by the New York Times as the favourite among podcast experts. Pocket Cast is beautifully designed, easy to use, and helps you quickly discover and enjoy your favorite podcasts with over 700,000 shows to choose from. Download the app, now free, at pocketcast.com.